name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Lessons from a donkey, learning to hear God the first time he speaks. Um, I'll be preaching from Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24. So if you want to turn to that, uh, we'll start there. Three chapters. Hopefully I can get through it. If we, in three days or so, we should be out of here. So uh, a couple months ago, our Sunday school class went and I, we were going through this particular section of scripture and, I, and it caught my attention again. And I have to admit, it was, a, it was fun to go back through uh, this passage and, and look at it again um, and make some applications for us. So those of you that know me well know that I love to tie the scripture to history and like to give a uh, practical way of looking at it, give a context so that when we're reading these stories, it's not just floating out there in some thin air that we don't really know how to tie it to anything uh, in the rest of history. I like the scriptures to be real. I like them to be not just applicable, but believable. I like them to have ramifications that actually make you think about it. And one of the things I've discovered for myself was that when you have, uh, when you have the context, not just, not just the biblical context, but the historical context and the time context, and you, you can see what's actually going on, the, the scripture actually makes more sense and the scripture becomes clearer to understand it. Mark, could you put, could you put the, uh, the map up there? All right. I had to borrow a uh, scientific pointer here from my kids. So I want to um, set the stage with a map to begin with. So we're going to look at it just briefly, see if, I can, see if I can direct this thing correctly. The story that we're going to look at today takes place right there. Um, there's the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River coming down, the Dead Sea. And what's going to happen, what has just happened, um, is that Moses has brought the children of Israel um, right up to the gates of the promised land. So they were down in this area, and somehow they're not quite sure which direction they took, but somehow they go across um, this area here, and they come up around Edom and around Moab, and they get into a battle. They get in two battles in this area here. And Moab, which is this area right here, is the primary, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, is the primary guy who's going to be like the antagonist to Moses in the story. Um, it doesn't show it on the map, but the other guy we're going to be looking at is coming from over here somewhere. He's about 400 miles away, so I couldn't put it on the scale. So let's get started. Numbers chapter 22. Uh, and um, I'll just give you just a little bit. So the main characters is Balak, and he is the head of a Moabite nation. We don't quite know how much, you know, how... Uh, Solid it was, but it was a it was a nation, a, a coalition of tribes, if nothing else. And then there is Balaam, sounds similar, but a different guy, and uh, he is a prophet. You can kind of call him different things. He's a sorcerer, if you want to call him that. He's 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 looked at by the pagan nations as a seer. He's actually referred to um, on the side of a. There's an inscription that has his name and what he did and visions that he had on the side of a temple in that area. And they call him a seer of the gods. 
So he's a historical character. Um, then you have the children of Israel, and uh, the fourth main character is a donkey. The time frame is roughly 1400 BC, uh, 1405 to 1400, somewhere in there. So it's about 900 years after Noah's flood. Um, and it involves, uh, just as a point of reference, uh, involves Moab, which is actually the Moabites are descendants of Lot. And so they're actually relatives. All of these people, Edomites, the Moabites, are all relatives of Israel. But they don't get along with them too well. <clears throat> and it's also only about 400 years since Lot would have been with Abraham. Lot's descendants are the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so uh, for me, it was, kind of a, it was just a reminder to myself that when, you, when you're raising children... If you pass the torch to them, you're stopping for at least one more generation. You're, you're slapping the, the influx of paganism. But within 400 years, these people are entirely divorced of the God of Israel, entirely divorced from the creator that made them. Um, and then finally, uh, there's two more. Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, which um, you'll hear those names come up in Psalms, and it's, it's a very historical reference. They are... Uh, Bashan is up here, and the Amorites are down here, and there's a battle right there, and there's a battle right there. And they've actually been, uh, they've been there long enough to, to actually take over a bunch of cities as well. So, so that's the context. So let's get started. The Israelites traveled on and camped in the plains of Moab near the Jordan across from the Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, Moab was terrified of the people because they were numerous, and Moab dreaded the Israelites. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde will devour everything around us like, a, like an ox eats up the green plants in the field. Now for us over here where it's, everything is green, uh, green plants in the field, you could have a lot of ox, eat a lot of grass and not have any problem. But over there where it's dry, having plenty of grass for your ox is a big deal. So he says... He sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor, at Pethor, which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. So it's about 400 miles away on the west side of the Euphrates River. Please come, he says. A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land and are living right across from me. Please come and put a curse on these people for me because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of land, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. All right. So Balaam shows up on the scene. He's still a an image out there. He hasn't come to Moab yet, but he shows up on the scene in the writings. Now, I'll give you a little more detail about Balaam. There is, a, there is a fair amount of, like I said, there was an inscription on a temple wall. There's a fair amount of information that's extra biblical. I'll give you some of it. I can't prove it. I have no idea if it's true or not, but if it is, it would make it interesting. Supposedly, he lives to be 190 years old, and in some of the accounts, he's actually in, Pharaoh, in Egypt on Pharaoh's side during the contention between Moses and Pharaoh. If that's the case, then he's got a long-standing relationship with the children of Israel and with Pharaoh. But I can't prove that. I'm just telling you what, um, what information is out there. But there's no question about it um, that he is a real figure. He is a historical account. You don't write something on the side of a temple about a guy uh, that we can actually go and read today. All right, so here we go. 
I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. That's what Balak says. The elders of Moab and Midian, in verse 7, departed with fees for divination in hand. They came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. He said, spend the night here, and I'll give you the answer that the Lord tells me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Now, uh, I reading this, at first glance, you kind of pick up that he's this pagan guy, and then he's having a dream, and the God of heaven is talking to him. So we'll, we'll discuss that in a little more detail. I just want you to note that as we're going through. Balaam replied to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message to me. Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. I may be able to fight against them and drive them away. And then God said to Balaam, You are not to go with them. You are not to curse this people, for they are blessed. So Balaam got up the next morning and said to Balak's officials, Go back to your land, because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The officials of Moab arose and returned to Balak and reported, Balaam refused to come with us. Balak sent officials again who were more numerous and higher in rank than the others. They came to Balaam and said to him, This is what Balak the son of Zippor says, Let nothing keep you from coming to me, for I will greatly honor you and do whatever you ask me, so please come and put a curse on these people. But Balak responded to the servants of Balaam responded to the servants of Balak, If he were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the command of the Lord my God to do anything small or great. Please stay here overnight as the others did, so that I may find out what else the Lord has to tell me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, Since these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but you must only do what I tell you. When he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the officials of Moab. But God was incensed that Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. All right, which brings us to, I have three points today, that brings us to our first uh, point in the, in the story. Uh, this, this business of listening to the Lord, you can go ahead and go back to the, to the other slide now. The business of listening to the Lord is actually uh, quite serious. We have somehow managed to uh, escape from that oftentimes. We, we, we use God's grace, we t- use God's grace lightly, I think, and we allow it to cover things that should not have happened to begin with by have we just been obedient, we wouldn't have been in the situation to begin with. And this is, this is one of those situations. So here's Balaam. Now, I, I can't tell you for sure. Some of the stuff that I'm saying I think is, is true, but I can't prove it. I think that Balaam is not unlike um, Melchizedek and the fact that Abram comes out of the, the Ur of the Chaldees. God speaks to Abram kind of seemingly out of nowhere, and he knows who the creator God is and listens to him. And moves his, his family cross country. It's about 900 years after the flood. And Noah, we know, lived um, for 300 years after the flood. And, and Shem lived for 500 years after the flood. So, it's not, to me, it's not, it's not un, unbelievable that, that there would be pockets of knowledge of the Creator God that would still exist in the known world tribes that have had that have retained the knowledge of Jehovah. So I don't think that it's I don't think that it's unlikely that Balaam I mean I think it's likely that Balaam knew who Jehovah was and that there was a sense in which um, he worshiped him as God. 
Solomon, who grew up under, you know, he's the son of David, who speaks to God in dreams, and like Marshall was saying, like prays, and the fire of heaven falls down, turns right around and builds temples to Chemosh and Molech within sight of the temple of God and seems to accept them as gods. And so there's this, almost this disconnect in their minds, like there's this God and this God and this God and this God, where we tend to look at that and say, well, if God of heaven is real, there can't be anything else. And so I think Balaam is, my, my conjecture is that Balaam has this understanding of Jehovah that is, that is legitimate and God can speak to him. And yet there's this plethora of gods surrounding him. And I'm not sure that he's obedient, but certainly he knows when God's speaking to him. So he goes to God, the, the, the messengers come, and by the way, it's about a 25-day hike between where Balak is and where Balaam is. So this, this whole discourse takes a while. So Balaam sends messengers, and I mean, Balak sends messengers, and Balaam's there, and he says, you guys, stay the night, I'll talk to God tonight. And God says, who are those people? Oh, they're from Moab, and they want me to come and curse Israel. And God says, no, you're not going to do it. Israel is blessed, and you will not curse anyone that I bless. So he gets up the next morning and tells them that. Now, had the story ended there, we wouldn't have heard about it probably. But it doesn't. This whole cycle repeats itself, and the next time they come back, they come back with a much bigger pile of money and offerings for him. Here's a question. Does Balaam think in his mind that God has changed his mind between the first visit and the last visit? What has changed? The only thing that's changed, as far as I can tell, is the amount of stuff that's coming to Balaam. So my first point is this. God's first answer doesn't change just because the stakes do. Now listen, that actually is a lot heavier than it sounds, because it actually used, it, we, that covers a great deal of decisions that we make. How many times have you heard someone say, uh, I'm taking this new job because it pays a lot more, the benefits are so much better. And so you commence talking to them, and the job that they're required to do pushes, pushes what they know, not that it's doing something even immoral, but it pushes what they know is best for them. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? It's not even that you're doing something wrong. It's that you're doing something that you know long-term is not the best for you or the best for your family or the best for whatever. But you're taking it because the loot is more. There's some other examples in Scripture. It starts right off the bat in Genesis. The serpent comes to Eve and says, Did God really say, don't eat of this fruit? And then he raises the stakes. He's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat this. Um, king David. This is one that, that frustrated me growing up. When he, when he becomes king and the ark is not where it's supposed to be, and he goes to get it back, and they take a cart down there, and they put the ark on the cart, and, then, and they're walking along, the oxen are pulling it, and the cart tips, and the ark tips, and a man reaches to grab it, to stop it, to stop the ark of the covenant from landing on the ground. And he dies like that. And it really puts a damper on the parade and they all go home and the ark stays at the house that's right there. And I struggled with that growing up. God, I mean, they're trying to do the right thing. Yes, they're doing what is God's will in that the ark of the covenant is supposed to be in the tabernacle, but God had told them very specifically how to move it. And they just ignored it. 
So King Solomon's another one. I mean, thank you, Marshall, for reading that. He was, he was the wisest man that ever lived. He was given, in his reign, it says that silver wasn't even counted as worth. It was like gravel in the streets. There was so much of it. And yet, knowing what he knew, he deliberately married women who were not from his faith. Now, was that spoken against, or was he doing that and he was just ignorant? No, it was very clear from the beginning that they were not to marry outside of the faith. So, if that's the case, and if we are to listen to God's first answers... We need to know what the first answers are, correct? Um, If I say to my son, son, I told you not to do that. And he says, not to do what? You know. Well, sometimes they do, and sometimes they're just trying to pull it. But that could be a legitimate thing. Uh, It actually happened in our house the other day. Um, one, One of them got disciplined for something, and then the other one the next day did it. And uh, it was Serena, my lovely little daughter. And, and, and Melissa was fussing at her. She's like, your brother got disciplined for that yesterday. And Serena said, I didn't know that's what it was for. Because when you told me, or when I asked you why he was getting disciplined, you said it was none of my business. <laughs> <laughs> so she literally did not know what it was for. So we need to know what God's first answers are. In some ways, you could say that all of Scripture is God's first answers, but I think, that's, I, think that's, um, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. My, my sons know that I talk a lot, and I tell them many things, but there are some things that they know that are, that, are, that are rooted and grounded that I live my life on, that everything in my life is based on. And if you ask them, they could tell you some of those things. But there are certain things in Scripture that are what God says. Thus saith the Lord. This is, this is in Jesus, when, when Jesus was on earth, one of the Pharisees asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Instantly he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are first answers. If you are ever in a situation where you should, where to, in order to accomplish a greater pile of goods, you are required to do something that's not inside those two commands, I can tell you right now that you're in a Balaam situation. So the next, so let's go back to it. So the, so the first answers, I would say, just simplification, the first answers are certainly, you could put the Ten Commandments in there. If you don't know what the Ten Commandments are, if you never read, thou shalt not covet, maybe you don't know that God doesn't want you to covet, but if you ever read it, you know it. And you can say categorically at that point, anything that requires me to covet is rethinking a first answer. Thou shalt not commit adultery self-explanatory guys if that's the situation and you're required to or you want to do something that's different than that you are asking for a second answer and it's not a good place for you to be so so the ten commandments the one i just you know the first and second commandment that jesus commented and then jesus comes along and he raises the standard he says well hey because the the pharisees asked him hey moses moses gave us the right to divorce and jesus said yeah he did but do you know why he did it? Because your heart was hard. He said, it wasn't like that from the beginning. God said, when this man and this woman are put together, don't let anyone take them apart. 
That's the first command. That's the first answer. Don't go rethinking it. All right. So, first point is, God's first answer doesn't change just because the money gets more. God's first answer doesn't change just because you want something more than, the second, than, than it was originally. The second one is, when your donkey speaks, don't argue with him. And that's the comedy in this story that cannot be missed. I don't care how you read it, it's just, it just, it's just there. So, let's keep reading. Verse 23. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it. So he hit her again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam, and he became furious and began to beat his donkey with a stick. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she asked Balaam, What have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? Now listen, I don't think that anything that you do or don't do will be recorded in a new book for the Bible for the rest of humanity to read for the rest of time. But remember that somebody might see it, and somebody might read it, and somebody might write about it in their diary. So don't answer your donkey when it talks to you. How angry do you have to be to have a donkey start talking and you start arguing with it? She says, why have you beaten me? And Balaam says, you made me look like a fool. Excuse me, you're talking to your donkey. If I had a sword in my hand right now, I'd kill you. And the donkey said, am I not the donkey you've ridden your whole life? Have I ever treated you like this before? And he says, no. And then it says, the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam knelt and bowed with his face to the ground. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because what you're doing is evil in my sight. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and let her live. In other words, Balaam, I like the donkey better than I like you. But this is reality. How many times have you felt or have you wondered, maybe, whether God is trying to talk to you in a, cir in a circumstance and you either ignore it or you just figure, well, that's, it can't be God talking? How many times have you gotten out and kicked your car when it wouldn't go? And it may have been your donkey not going. I had that happen one time. And I'm going to tell you about it, and it's embarrassing. Um, but Balaam was using his donkey for transportation, and this particular transportation was a minivan. It was when Melissa and I were, were uh, engaged to be married. We were about six weeks out from getting married, and we were headed from Arkansas, where she lived, back up to uh, Virginia. On the trip back, we would, we would stop halfway. My grandparents lived in Kentucky, and so we didn't have a chaperone with us, so we were driving from Arkansas. We were going to go to my grandparents for the night and then leave the next day and come drive all the way through from there to Virginia. <clears throat> it was a borrowed van. It was full of stuff. I mean, packed full of Melissa's stuff moving up, and we were about 
an hour and a half from my grandparents' house. It was about 9.30 at night. We were driving all day, and we're on a hill on the west side of, of Nashville, long, graded hill going up this mountain. When we, started, when we started dating, our prayer was that our courtship experience would be something that we could say to our kids, do as we have done, not as we say to do, but we haven't done. And that night, I was caressing her in a way that I shouldn't. And that's just the way it was. I mean, I'm just telling you straight up. And I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. And I'm driving along and I am ignoring that feeling in my heart because I want something else more. We're driving along. Nothing has changed. Suddenly the van just starts slowing down. And I push on the gas and nothing happens and it just starts slowing down. It goes slower and slower. And I want to tell you something. It took about three seconds for the Holy Spirit to tell me why the van, why my donkey was talking. Well, that's really embarrassing because now I've got, a, I've got a problem. I've got a van that's breaking down on me, and I know why. I'm not about to say it, right? So the van slows down and slows down until it's barely moving. And we're creeping up this hill on the, on the shoulder, and we get to the top of the hill. And just as we get to the top, there's, a, there's an exit ramp, and there's a uh, truck stop over to the side. So we pull off, and I pull in the truck stop, and I'm like, I'm mad. I'm, man, what's wrong with this stupid thing? And I get out, and frankly, I put the hood up, and I have no idea what I'm supposed to be looking at underneath the hood, but I'm looking at it. And all the time, my heart is pounding, and I'm the Holy Spirit saying, you know why you're stuck in this truck stop. And I finally go back, and I open the door, and I say, babe, i got to confess something. And she said, I know. This is a true story. This is, this is to me, it's an exciting thing, because it showed that God actually cared about Two little insignificant people driving down a road. We confessed that we had done something that we should not do. We confessed our sin. We asked God to forgive us. And I'm not making this up. I got back in the car. I turned it back on. And we never had another stitch of trouble for the whole road home. My donkey talked loud and clear that night. Loud and clear. I'm not saying that God is going to always use a vehicle. He likes to use my vehicles because mine are, evidently he likes kind of half broken down vehicles. It helps him out. And I struggle, honestly, I struggle to tell you that story because it's very embarrassing. But it's a true story. And it was about as eloquent as a donkey talking to me. That minivan spoke loud and clear. So, so just keep that in mind, Okay. Third, second, so the second point is when your donkey speaks, don't argue with it. Try to figure out what it's saying. Third point, speaking God's truth will likely bring you anger and scorn. So Balaam now is on the path. I don't know how far he is before God tries to kill him, but he's on the path to Moab. And when, when this whole thing happens, God says, okay, you're not dead. You would have been dead if your donkey hadn't sat down, but you're not dead. So what you're going to do is you're going to continue on down there. But you're only going to tell me, you're only going to tell Balak what I put in your heart. Now, I think Balaam at this point is probably suddenly keenly aware of the God of Israel and his creator God in a way that he hadn't been up to that point. So he gets back on his donkey, 
Seemingly, there's no more incidents. They get all the way to Moab, and Balak's so excited, he gets there. Now we can curse these people. Starting in chapter 23. Then Balaam, Balaam said to Balak, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams. I mean, they wasted a lot of animals in this situation. But what happened was, um, he gets there and they make, they make all these sacrifices. And the theory is that the sacrifices will appease the gods, right? I mean, Balak's trying to appease gods, the god of, Moabite, of the Moabites and everything. And that they will then speak and tell Balaam something that he can curse the children of Israel with. So Balaam leaves and goes over. It says, uh, Balaam said to Balak, Stay here by your burnt offering while I'm gone. Maybe the Lord will meet with me. I will tell you whatever he reveals to me. So he went to a barren hill, and God met with him. And Balaam said, I've arranged seven altars and a bull and a ram on each altar. Then the Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and say what I tell you. So he returned to Balak, who was standing there by his offering with all the officials. And he begins to speak. Here's his speech. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, he's orating, from the eastern mountains. Come put a curse on Jacob for me. Come denounce Israel. How can I curse someone God has not cursed? How can I denounce someone the Lord has not denounced? I see them from the top of rocky cliffs, and I watch them from the hills. There is a people living alone. It does not consider itself among the nations. Who has counted the dust of Jacob or numbered the dust clouds of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright. Let my end be like theirs. Wow. Can you imagine poor Balak? I mean, he's just put a fortune on the line, and this guy comes, and not only does he not curse them, he is blessing them. And he's like, ah, stop, stop. What have you done, he said. And if you remember your Old Testament history, when somebody blesses someone, remember the story with Esau and Jacob, and then Esau comes back and he's like, you blessed Jacob and, and he blessed me. And he said, what? Isaac said, I, I can't. I've put all the blessing on Jacob. I can't take it back. So once the blessing is there, he can't take it back. And Balak's like, let's do it again. Maybe you can get it next time. So they do the whole thing all over again, right? Second time it happens. And they're, and they're on this mountain and he's like, look out over there. Just see all those people out there. See them. Look at them. Look at them. They're just going to ruin me. They build the altars. They sacrifice the animals. And God says, okay, here's another word for you. And he tells them basically the same thing again. Blesses them all over again. And Balak says, don't, <laughs> don't curse them. Just don't bless them anymore. He's really frustrated now. But they say, let's do it one more time. So he does it one more time. This time, though, Balaam's getting the picture. They build the altars and everything. But he says, because he figured out that the Lord doesn't want him to curse them. Took him a while to learn that one. But he's figured it out. And he says, he didn't go to seek omens. He just started speaking. And it says, the spirit of the Lord in chapter 24, when Balaam looked up and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the spirit of God came on him and he proclaimed his poem. And something changes in this one. I want you to listen to it. Up to this point, he's been speaking, but it's almost like it's, it's third person. Listen to what he says in this one. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are opened. He's got it. And he goes on and blesses him and blesses him and blesses him. And Balak is so angry at the end of it. He says, 
Verse 10 of chapter 24, Then Balak became furious with Balaam and struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to put a curse on my enemies, but instead you have blessed them these three times. Now go to your home. I said I would reward you richly. But look, the Lord has denied you a reward. In other words, you came here expecting a bunch. I'm not paying you a single penny for that month and a half trip that you just made. And Balak says to him, and Balaam says to him, didn't I previously tell the messengers that you sent me, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the Lord's commands to do anything good or bad of my own will. I will say whatever the Lord says. Now, I'm going back to my people, but first let me warn you what these people will do to you in the future. And he turns it around and he says to Balak, fine, I'm going home. I know you're mad. There's nothing I can do about it though because I have to say what God says. Now let me tell you what God says about you. And he says the same thing again. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are opened, the oracle of one who hears the sayings of God. Verse 17, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter arise from Israel. Not only did he bless Israel, not only did he say to Balak, you cannot go against these people. He said, there is coming a king someday that's bigger than anything we can know. This presumably pagan guy who has some contact with the Lord gives us an amazing, beautiful messianic prophecy, referring also to David, but far reaching forward to when Jesus comes on the scene. So third point, speaking God's truth will likely bring anger and scorn on you. It will likely bring anger and scorn on you. If you don't believe it, try reverting back to one of God's first answers in our world today where everything is up for grabs and there is no such thing as hard truth. Try it sometime. Just quote one of the Ten Commandments to someone who is propagating or advocating for something that is opposed to it. Just try it. You will be a hater. That's what they call them now, I guess. I, you're, you're somebody who doesn't understand how the world actually works anymore. You don't understand how old-fashioned you really are. And who made you be king and boss over us anyway. I want to ask you something. Um, it is really easy. Hear what I'm saying. It is really easy to be quietly um, truthful. That is to say, to not speak out against something. Especially when you get older and you speak out against something and then you have the situation where uh, if you have kids, this will happen. But dad, you said that and you did this. And it's, and it's hard sometimes because you don't want to, you feel bad. And you're like, well, I've blown it over here. So how can I speak truth into this situation? It's really easy to be that person. It's really hard to remember this, that we are not we're not talking about our own rules. We're not talking about our own way of life. We're talking about the creator of the universe. And he's the one that sets the standards. He's the one that sets the rules. So when I say, when, when Balaam says to Balak, I'm not cursing those people. And Balak says, why not? Because their God who made them said I'm not to. I don't really have a choice here. Does your vision, does your vision of God allow you to be strong enough to accept the consequences of being his child. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have persecution. Does your vision of God be big enough 
be so all-encompassing in your life that whatever happens, whether it's a, a job opportunity that comes at the cost of something that is significant to your creator, whether it's a you're in a marriage and it's tough and you think, well, you know, God really wants me to be happy, so therefore I should bail out and go find happiness. Is your vision of God big enough to hold you when nothing else is going to hold you? Is his truth and his desire for what is truth be strong enough to override the Balaks who are tempting you with stuff in this world? It's a, it's, that's, not a, that's not a question that you just think about once and you're like, yeah, it's big enough. I'm going to go one way. That's not how it works. Because the reality is, is we are always in flux. If I do not actively seek to keep my vision of Jehovah big enough, and part of that is being here on Sunday with us as a church and being reminded when Esther's up front crying because she's overwhelmed with emotion because she's in the work that God has her in. And she is being the body at Bacon's Castle, wherever the boat is at the moment. When, those are the things that help keep my vision for Jehovah hot, that help keep my vision for what God's truth actually means in life strong. Conclusions. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to throw one little tidbit in here. This is it's not mentioned in Scripture at all, but I want to bring it out just because I think it's there. I just can't prove it. This book and this story is in the book of Numbers, which was written by Moses. I want to ask you a question. How in the world does Moses find out about this story? I have a thought. This is my thought. I think when Balaam left, I think he walked right down into the camp of Israel and went to Moses. I really think so. Can't prove it. But why not? He's right there. Moses, I want to tell you something. Remember how, if it's true that he lived 190 years, and if it's true he was in... Remember how I opposed you down there in Egypt? Remember all these? And, and I thought you were wrong and your God was crazy. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you what just happened with Jehovah in my life. And let me tell you about what God has predicted for you as a future in this. In this. I, th I can't prove it, but I think that's what happened. How else would Moses know it? But the important thing is, is this story came in here. And I think it's a good story for us. Here's some conclusions for us to think about. Some applications for us. Get to know and understand, number one, God's first answers. I'm telling you something. It, as one song says, you can't stand on promises if you don't know what they are. That's just a true statement. If you do not know what the Scripture says, if you do not know what God's Word says, you are helpless. Now, you can know what it says and ignore it, but if you don't know what it says, you don't have anything to guide you in life. And the only way to get to know it is to spend time getting to know it. There is no other option. You can't download it off the internet. You can't even get it from your friends. You can have all the discussions in the world you want. If you do not have an understanding of what his first answers are, if you do not have an understanding of what he's saying in his word, you cannot function correctly as his follower. And that sounds harsh, but it's true. There is no other way. It takes time. I remember when I was about 12 years old, looking at a preacher one day who, who knew the scripture so well, and I was like, I'll never, ever. I mean, I know John 3.16, and I know I can say Psalm 25, and, and he was just like flipping back and forth through the scriptures. But you know what? 
a long time later, I have a, I know it's not perfect by any means, but I have a much better understanding of what the scripture is and what it says and how it applies than I did then. And it's because I've been reading it and studying it and thinking about it for all of that time in between. There is no other way to do it. Make it a priority. Find a mentor if you need. Find somebody that will help you stay on track with it, but do it. Secondly, when the stakes are up, don't ask God for a second answer. If you know what the answer is, don't go asking him for another one. Because you know what? He gave Balaam another answer, and he said, yeah, go ahead and go. And Balaam says, oh, okay. Got it. See, God gave me permission. No, he didn't. God gave him a test, and he failed it categorically. Don't expect that second answer to be right. He's given you a test. Are you going to really believe and do what he says to do or not? But you can't do it unless you know the first answer. Third, once you know the truth, stand for it. Now, I'm the first one to admit that, that having an understanding of Scripture, I'm not talking about theological understandings, because we're going to always, for the rest of our lives, be, as we read things, we're going to, we're developing a format to put the information that God gives us into. And so there's a sense in which you have a constant growth of understanding, a constant growth of, of increasing in your grasp of things. That's not what I'm talking about. When Melissa and I got married, we had a first answer in our mind. The first answer is what Jesus said. When those Pharisees asked him, what? Moses gave us a writing of divorce when Jesus said, yes, but that wasn't how God had it planned from the beginning. And so from the beginning of our marriage, when we said our vows, when we said, till death do us part, never, ever, ever, under any circumstances was that going to be violated. My children can tell you that. We talk about it frequently. It doesn't matter the circumstances. Because I want God's first answer to be true in my life. And I'm not going back and asking for another one. I'm not going to ask him for a second one. It doesn't matter what happens. But if you do that, somebody's going to challenge you. And in today's world where challenging can happen without any face to it, somebody's going to challenge you. And somebody's going to be angry when you say something. And I'll tell you, when somebody comes at me and they're angry and they want to say something to me, they want to tell me what for. It's hard for that anger not to rise back up, right? And when you, if you can keep it down and not be angry back, then, then if you are truly speaking truth, the truth can come through. But if you allow your anger to come up, the scripture says the wrath of man does not make the righteousness of God. And you wiped out your ability to speak truth into that. So those are things that have to be learned as you go along. I want to close with um, I want to close with a passage in First Peter chapter three. If you want to, if you want to follow along, this is this is what we should. It should just be a, a, a mindset in us. First Peter chapter three, um, verse thirteen, starting in verse thirteen and reading through verse eighteen. Peter's talking to people who are suffering, and they're suffering legitimately. And he's telling them, hang on, be of good courage. This is what he says. And who will harm you if you are deeply committed to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your heart. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. If we could live out that, we will never get into a Balaam situation because we're walking with him and hearing him the first time he speaks. Finally, remember that God uses donkeys too, so listen for donkeys. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.